friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is the inaugural episode of Series 1, which I'm calling The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Let me begin by warning you all that my heart and my mouth want to say baby wampas. Every time I say wampus babies or baby stars like it's supposed to be, know that baby wampas is what nearly came out, so forgive me if a few sneak through. A baby wampas must be some sort of adorable monster baby from a major sci-fi franchise, which isn't exactly what I will be discussing with you on this podcast, though in some cases maybe it's not so far off. But what do I mean by wampas, really? It was the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers, which was a branch of the AMPA, so W-A-M-P-A, pluralized, Wampas. Wampas, as they delighted in calling themselves, since it was very cute, was formally established in early 1921. Its members were the studio publicists and press agents working on the West Coast. Ray Leak from Metro was the first president, with other members coming from famous players, First National, and other studios. An excerpt from The Truth About Movies from 1924 explains, The motive for the organizing of the Wampas was the thought that the Polisini men, if linked together in a congenial body, could express their thought, their ideas, and their suggestions in general, that they could meet at debate, discuss issues pertaining to their work, that they could build their ideals on firmer foundations, and plan constructive work for their departments, one of vital necessity to the motion picture industry. Now, you know, at first, this professional association seemed mostly to be about having parties. There's a piece in the July 2nd, 1921, Exhibitor's Herald trade paper that is quite telling. Wampus party very informal, says Pete. That's Pete Smith, the author of the article. Ray Leak sees to it that everybody has a good time at the beach. For their second social event of the season, as twere, members and friends of the WMPA, otherwise known as the Wampas, journeyed to Redondo Beach recently for an afternoon and evening of enjoyment. The affair was quite informal, judging from some of the bathing suits of the members. There was plenty to eat for those who brought food and much to drink for those who had extra-large hip pockets. It goes on to tell a story about one member trading a bottle of alcohol, this was during Prohibition, remember, to a fisherman, and insisting that he had caught a fish. The party also featured sing-alongs and a bonfire, so a bunch of studio publicity men getting drunk on the beach in their swimsuits. The trade paper concludes, as Howard Strickling so aptly put it, a good time was had by all. Quick aside, you may be familiar with the name Howard Strickling, as he was one of Hollywood's most infamous fixers. The guys over at Wampas, and they were all guys, didn't just get drunk playing in the sand. They also had regular meetings, too. The trade papers that first year make reference to plenty of schmoozing opportunities, as well as useful guest speakers. Membership was all made up of those in charge of advertising movies, and I found reference to all kinds of special topics being discussed. For example, one advisor recommended that the studios stop bragging about how much their pictures cost because it was alienating to the public. Censorship was also a hot topic. Independent groups, often with religious ties, were frequently up in arms about the content of Hollywood films, 
and the sometimes scandalous lives of silent stars. Professional development is all well and good, but soon Wampus wanted to do something a bit different, something that would make a big splash in Hollywood, that would get people talking and turn some heads. And if this something also provided a good reason to hang out with some attractive women, or, you know, put a smile on the face of an attractive woman you already know, all the better. That's where the idea of baby stars was formed. Akin to a 30 under 30 list, or even Sexiest Man Alive, it would become a yearly who's who of who to watch. And since it was created by the very people whose job it was to keep you watching, it's safe to say that the Wampus Baby Stars program was a huge success. Eventually. For the Wampus itself, at least. Results varied for the Baby Stars. The concept was simple enough. Members of Wampas would nominate up-and-coming actresses, and then all vote on who would be the stars of tomorrow. That's where the utterly embarrassing name Baby Star came from. It's infantilizing and sexist as all get out, but their excuse was that it was meant to show the winners would eventually grow into full-fledged stars. And that's what the list claimed to predict. These were the 13 sure-thing talents that had the full support and backing of the Wampas. There were a few qualifications that nominees had to have beyond being conventionally attractive within the confines of the time period. One, they must be under 25, or believably so. Two, they must be signed to a major studio. Three, they must have had at least three screen credits. And four, they must not yet be a star. The mythology of the Wampus Baby Star's selection would later grow as 1924's The Truth About the Movies would put it just a couple of years later. When the time comes to choose the baby stars, every available young woman player is considered, first from the standpoint of dramatic experience, then as to beauty and figure and youth, then as to background. To be a Wampus candidate, each girl must screen well. She must have brains, and she must have education. The reason for these requirements is the fact that the Wampus selections are supposed to become stars in their own right within the ensuing year. Also no pressure. Become an A-list star within the year. We believe in you. No pressure. All the pressure. For a bit of context, the top 10 money-making stars for 1922, as per the Quigley Publishing Company poll, which asked theater owners which stars made them the most money, were... Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Anita Page, Thomas Meehan, Rudolph Valentino, Pola Negri, Mae Murray, Harold Lloyd, Lon Chaney, and Douglas McLean. Some of those names are likely more familiar to you than others. And of course it's possible that you've stumbled onto this podcast with no prior knowledge and haven't heard of any of them. Don't worry, the main thing is that you're here, in out of the cold. The first Baby Stars list was announced in March 1922. If you were a regular movie fan, a reader of Photoplay, for example, which was the biggest magazine covering all things Hollywood, you might not have noticed the Wampas list as a collective. There was a picture of the Baby Stars in the May issue that year, a group shot with very little explanation. Here are the Baby Stars, it says, but why would you care? For the 1923 Baby Stars, Photoplay captioned them, the stars of tomorrow, in a small photo, which is marginally better. But, in fact, it would take until 1924 before the magazine presented the list itself as anything for the public to pay attention to. But we're still at the beginning. 
I've already established that the Wampas like to party, and it should come as no surprise that once they had gone through meetings of nominations, of evaluating dramatic experience, beauty, figure, and youth, and background, brains, and education, apparently, after they had done all that, I'm sure with great consideration, they voted for the young ladies they felt had the very most star potential. And once their list was set, on Wednesday, March 15th, they held quite the soiree at the Ambassador Hotel, the Wampus Frolic and Ball. It became an annual event, a sort of debutante's ball for the baby stars, introducing them to powerful players, not just within Wampus itself, but the studio heads, casting directors, regular directors, producers, and other executives who would make or break their burgeoning careers. That first frolic was one of the best social events of the season. Huge stars, the one the babies aspired to be, filled the ambassador ballroom. Bebe Daniels sang a song. Rudolph Valentino hung around, looking sexy. Cecil B. DeMille observed the goings-on from a private box like it was the Super Bowl. They even published a newspaper, handed out at the event, called the Midnight Wampas, because as is becoming ever clearer, these guys thought they were pretty cute. Finally, the first crop of Wampus baby stars were introduced. They were Mary and I, Helen Ferguson, Lila Lee, Jacqueline Logan, Louise Lorraine, Bessie Love, Catherine McGuire, Patsy Ruth Miller, Colleen Moore, Mary Philbin, Pauline Stark, Lois Wilson, and Claire Windsor. Do you recognize any of the names? It's been 101 years, so don't worry. I'm here to tell you about them all in no particular order. Bessie Love There's no skirting around the issue that, arguably more than anyone else in the Wampus Baby Stars first class, Bessie Love was already a star. As early as 1916, she was being proclaimed as the next Mary Pickford an ingenue type of the highest order. Discovered by film pioneer D.W. Griffith, he showcased her in Intolerance, and under personal contract to him, put her in several high-profile films, such as The Flying Torpedo, and opposite Douglas Fairbanks in three different pictures. This was all still in 1916, when she was only 18 years old. That same year, she got star billing in A Sister of Six, over the next six years, while she couldn't maintain the momentum of that first overnight success, Bessie Love, born Juanita Horton, was definitely a known and admired entity to filmgoers. Now, similar to Lila Lee, who we'll be discussing in episode two, her inclusion on the Wampus list came at a time when she was transitioning into more mature roles. She contracted a guy named Gerald C. Duffy to be her personal publicity representative. He had been an editor at Picture Play magazine, and later became a popular and prolific scenarios writer before passing away at just 32 in 1928 while dictating a script. I couldn't find definitive confirmation that Duffy was a member of Wampus, though given his role at Picture Play and as Love's dedicated publicity agent, I wouldn't be at all surprised. He certainly would have known members of the organization, and that may have influenced her inclusion. Regardless, it was part of Duffy's strategy to get her name on the new list. 
and to get her cemented in the public's mind as a serious actor. Post-Wampas, Bessie quickly found herself in a string of edgy parts, like playing an intravenous drug user in Human Wreckage, 1924, as a woman accused of murder in The Woman on the Jury, same year, a murderer's pregnant wife in Dynamite Smith, also 1924, and donning yellowface to play a woman escaping with her lover in the Vermilion Pencil, 1922, and again in the Purple Dawn, 1923, as a heartbroken girl mixed up with opium smuggling. Sadly and racistly, it was all too common to have white actors of the time playing other races, and it crops up a few more times in Bessie Love's filmography. The gritty roles worked, though Love was not relegated only to darker pictures. For example, in 1925, she appeared in the extremely interesting silent film The Lost World, notable as the first feature-length mainstream film to use stop-motion animation. As the decade progressed, although her career had its ups and downs, she survived into the sound era and even garnered an Oscar nomination in 1929 for The Broadway Melody. Her star eventually faded, but Bessie Love worked on stage and screen well into her 80s. A sign of the Wampus team's remarkable predictive prowess? Not really. That's like saying you knew it was going to rain after you're already wet. But still, a win for Wampas. Helen Ferguson Helen was about 21, although she may have been a bit coy about her age, and had been making films for about seven years when she was named as a Wampus Baby. To me, Helen comes across as exactly who the Wampus said they were looking for. She had a quirky, cute look about her, and had those big, expressive eyes that really work well in silent films. That quirky look may have stood in her way a bit, a problem that she attempted to reconcile a few years after being named a baby star. In 1925, she had a nose job. I don't think the change was dramatic, but it is discernible in profile. What's particularly interesting is that the rhinoplasty was used in her publicity. Far from attempting to hide the cosmetic work she had done, or, you know, blame it all on a deviated septum, Helen's surgery was referenced openly, though not without an air of comedy. For example, in Pitcher and the Pitcher Goer magazine, May 1925, an article on summer beauty tips reads... You may or may not wish to emulate Helen Ferguson, who had an aristocratic Roman nose until she underwent an operation and now glories in a pert, tip-tilted organ. But, whisper it, they say it is beautiful but useless, for poor Helen cannot smell at all now. I don't know if she could smell or not, and I don't know if her original nose had actually done as much harm to her career as perhaps Helen felt it did, but it's difficult to compare pre- and post-new nose as she married her husband, actor William Russell, that same year in 1925. While she continued to work steadily, often in major pictures in substantial roles, she wasn't as busy at work as she had been before her marriage. By the time she was widowed in 1929, her career was really starting to slow. It would be natural to assume that Helen might fade into memory. There was something different about Helen, though. Perhaps it was something sparked by her time being promoted as a Wampus Baby star. 
were her years navigating gossip columns and fan magazines, giving them just enough transparency into her real life, nose jobs and all. In 1934, having retired from the screen, she opened her own publicity and career guidance agency. For the next several decades, she became one of the most sought-after press agents in Hollywood. Helen worked with the likes of Loretta Young, Robert Taylor, Jeanette MacDonald, Faye Ray, Jackie Coogan, Clark Gable, Constance Bennett, and many more. Her most famous and long-standing professional relationship was with Barbara Stanwyck. The two were extremely close friends. And yes, there have been many rumors about the extent of that closeness. Do I think they were lovers? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. What I actually think is interesting is that Stanwyck was this remarkably private person. And Ferguson, as her press agent, was able to manage that. Here she had a client who really didn't want to reveal much of anything to interviewers, who didn't particularly want the public to know a damn thing about her personal relations, thank you very much. She could handle that. That's talent. So while Helen's most enduring legacy ended up being behind the scenes, for a stint in the 1920s, Wampus got this one reasonably right. Colleen Moore Similar to Bessie Love, for example, Colleen Moore could be argued to have already reached star status before landing on the Wampas list. Born in 1899 or 1900, 1901 or 1902, somewhere in there, documentation varies, Colleen starts hitting the trade and fan papers as early as 1917, with things really gearing up in 1920 when she was signed by Marshall Nealon and his new production company. That said, it is right around 1922, 1923, that her star's steady rise finally hit the next level. Wampus helped, but so did a haircut. Up to that point, Colleen was cast in juvenile roles, typical for her age. The innocent little girl, the sweet ingenue. Her hair and costumes were designed to match, but there was something not quite right about how she read on screen. She put it best herself in her autobiography, saying, The movie-going public of those years was as formula-minded about its heroines as it was about the stories they played in. Papa, what is beer? Expression notwithstanding, I just wasn't the accepted and acceptable model for a sweet young thing in the throes of her first love. The necessary curls I could manage, the same way Mary Pickford and the others did with time and effort. But no amount of either could make my five-foot-five boyish figure into a curvy petite five-foot-two, or transform the sauciness of my freckled face with its turned-up nose into the demure perfection of a Mary Pickford. Luckily for Colleen Moore, there was a new type of young woman emerging in post-war society. She was still underrepresented on screen, but she was in dance halls, on college campuses, and sitting across the dinner table from scandalized parents. The flapper. No, Colleen Moore wasn't the first on-screen flapper. But she was the clearest, most definitive example of the flapper's enduring image. 
a madcap modern gal with a short hemline and a shorter bob. The film that launched this new phase of her career and cemented her place as a star was 1923's Flaming Youth. Colleen read the novel and fought hard for the role. She even demanded that her then-fiancé, John McCormick, who wouldn't you know was a wampus, she demanded that he get her the part as a wedding present. But it really was her reinvented look that sealed the deal. Flaming Youth was a huge, sexy hit. It was so popular that it pushed Colleen into the 10th place spot in the Quigley Top Money-Making Stars poll. And no one could blame Colleen if she had just decided to ride the flapper wave as far as she could take it. But she was savvier and more pragmatic than that. With even sassier new flappers like Clara Bow hot on her heels, Colleen pivoted to more dramatic, serious roles to great success. She was on the top money-making stars list consistently between 1925 and 1931, coming in on the top spot in 1926. The public loved her. But knowing that her level of stardom was unlikely to last forever, she invested her earnings wisely. She remained wealthy long after her film career slowed down. Later in life, she wrote a book about investing, as well as her excellent autobiography, Silent Star. And she was super into dollhouses, which is just a neat fact. The Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle is, I believe, currently on display at the Museum of Science and History in Chicago. And that's cool as hell if you like miniatures, which I do. Colleen Moore is easily the most accurate of the Wampus 1922 predictions. She indeed became a major star within a year of being named, and stayed there for nearly a decade. It was her ability to play the long game, and to not only tap into the zeitgeist, but rapidly change course if need be, that sustained not just her career, but her livelihood. The Old Movie Lady here, interrupting your regular programming for a real ad from Photoplay in 1922. P stands for prevention of all winter ills, coughs, sneezes, colds, and the shivery chills. I for insist on pesos by name, for the words just as good as don't mean just the same. S is for safety, which means you are sure that all things in pesos are perfectly pure. Oh, that it's good enough for the old or the young. Three generations its praises have sung. S is for sure and safe and for sane. When pesos is used, not a cough can remain. Pesos contains no opiates. It is good for young and old. Buy it today. 35 cents everywhere. Pesos, safe and sane for cough and colds. Old movie lady note, I did some research. Pesos used to contain opiates. At this point in 1922, it contained chloroform. Lois Wilson Lois is a fragile pink Killarney rosebud, says Motion Picture Magazine in 1917. 
That same year, the magazine listed her as being 17 years old. But she was actually 23, having been born in 1894, which is information supported by census data. And if you're doing the mental math, that does make her the second oldest Wampus Baby star in 1922, because she would have been around 28. Full disclosure, I did all my research under the misconception that Lois was the oldest of the first Bat to the Baby stars. And you can imagine the swearing I did when I discovered my mistake. I was also worried that her age might have been the most interesting thing about Lois. And in a funny way, I was right. When I began to dive into the publicity she received throughout her career, the very thing that the Wampus guys were in charge of, her age, in one opaque way or another, is a constant refrain. In 1915, while working as a school teacher, Lois won a beauty pageant, and the following year she met pioneering film director Lois Weber. Weber is a fascinating figure worthy of her own podcast, but the quick and dirty version of her life is that she was not only one of the only women directing feature films at the time, but she was also a prolific and inventive filmmaker who was at the very top of her craft. In 1916, she was Universal's highest paid director. In short, she was a powerhouse. Meeting Lois Weber launched Lois Wilson into a career, as the former Lois cast the latter Lois in a small role in a film called The Dumb Girl of Portisi. Afterwards, Weber took Wilson under her wing and was instrumental in getting her other roles in Hollywood. Lois Wilson popped around for a few years with plenty of roles, but without much buzz. Then, in 1920, she signed a five-year contract with Famous Players, who would eventually merge with Paramount. There is a sudden increase in her publicity over the next year, as the studio wanted their money's worth. But in many of the new influx of fan magazine articles, the writers act, well, cagey about her age. It wouldn't be weird at all if they just didn't mention her age. But instead, she got what feels like an overcorrection. In Motion Picture Magazine, February 1921, it reads, Lois is something of a veteran, yet I doubt she is more than 21. Later that year, in Picture Play, the author notes that Lois is much younger than they expected her to be. And Adela Rogers St. John's writes in Photoplay, I do not know Miss Wilson's age. I should guess 25, since the youngest of the four sisters is now in high school but I feel sure she will be more attractive, more worth watching, ten years from now than she is today. At least Adela was close, but overall one gets the sense that everyone may have already been thinking about this. Yes, she's been around for five years, but we promise you she at least looks young. 1922 brought the Wampus Baby Stars list, and more roles. Lois definitely was busy, though she was typecast as the perfect wife in many of her films. Serene, dutiful, lovely. That was Lois Wilson on screen. An ideal leading lady to men like Richard Dix and J. Warren Kerrigan. So for the next few years, though not a standalone star, she was a popular screen presence. And audiences were curious about her. Photoplay has a feature called Questions and Answers several of the magazines had variations. 
Fans would mail in letters asking questions about their favorite stars. Stuff we'd just Google today. How tall are they? Who's married to who? Was it that actor in that movie or another actor who looks exactly the same? Can I see pictures of their feet? That kind of stuff. Including when's their birthday. And this caused Photoplay to have to go on record. June 28, 1896. It's two years off, but that's okay. Motion Picture Magazine went really rogue with their own answer, saying February 24th, 1895, which is closer by a year, but it's just a totally made-up birthday. Anyway, don't expect the Lois Wilson team, because remember, this is unlikely to be driven by Lois herself, to have changed course just yet. There were plenty of other misdirections on the age front, such as a Picture Play Magazine article heavily implying that 1900 was her birth year. It's all over the place, but it's not that egregious. All the other press surrounding her stresses how wholesome Lois was to help support her on-screen image as the most innocent, lovely, ideal little woman. She was so bored by this that in 1926 she bobbed her hair to look more badass and after practically begging her studio to give her more interesting roles, left Famous Players in 1927. Unfortunately, really exciting roles didn't follow, but she continued to work and work. The focus shifted to her status as a bachelor girl, just palling around with her roommates. Essentially, they had to start addressing her unattachedness. No matter how old she claimed to be, audiences knew that they had seen her on screen for about 15 years, and that none of her perfectly wholesome and lovely rumored relationships had ever resulted in marriage. In the early 1930s, everybody thought this was super weird. So the articles take a tone of, Lois is loving single life, but she'd give it all up for the perfect man. Literally, she will devote her life to her career, dot dot dot, until the right man happens along, is a subtitle to an article in Motion Picture, 1931. The right man didn't happen along, Lois never married. She was very close friends with Gloria Swanson, Ruth Chatterton, Marion Nixon, Genevieve Tobin, and others, however, and her personal life seems all the richer for it. One final bit of publicity before Lois Wilson's push for stardom shifted into a long career in character roles. In 1932, ten years after appearing on the Wampus Baby Stars list, there was an advertorial in Motion Picture Magazine. Not afraid of birthdays ahead, reads the headline. With a collection of pictures of floating heads, the stars featured aren't afraid because they all use the same ten-cent soap, apparently, thus preserving their beauty. Jean Harlow's head is captioned, I'm 20. Laura LaPlante says, I'm 26. And Lois Wilson's, I'm 28. Like hell you are. Ageism is a fucked up thing. I don't blame Lois or even her team for being less than direct about her actual age. Lying about one's age is a tradition older than Hollywood itself. Shaming a full decade off is a bold move, however, especially since audiences may well remember that she was a young lady in the first films they saw her in, not a literal child. But hey, it's unlikely that all but a few superfans were holding on to that 1925 issue of Photoplay that was only off by two years. Speaking of 
super fans, I came across a bizarre and frightening incident that happened to Lois in 1932. She received a mysterious package one day and discovered inside a butcher's knife covered in red paint to look like blood, along with a note with a skull and crossbones on it. The police traced the threatening package back to a 21-year-old in Oregon who had been writing fan letters to her regularly. He was arrested and underwent psychiatric assessment. I won't leave you on that grim note. You'll be pleased, I think, to know that, well, no, Lois Wilson never really became a big, big star. She did work steadily to good acclaim. She made her final film in 1949 and lived to be 93 years old. And yes, by that time, it seems like she stopped giving a shit about her age. Catherine McGuire Bessie loves personal press agent Gerald Duffy, may or may not have been part of Wampus, but Catherine McGuire's future husband, George Landy, sure as hell was. In 1922, he was the 30-year-old publicity director at First National, then known as Associated First National Pictures, and a proud founding member of the Wampas. He wasn't exactly the sort of guy who would stop a girl in her tracks if you catch my drift. There's a joke that I've seen repeated as an anecdote with a few variations about George Landy. The earliest that I found was in Camera, the November 4th, 1922 edition, and it reads, The Face in the Barbershop, a drama. Scene, Hollywood Barbershop. Customer in chair gazes fixedly at red-haired young man waiting. Customer leaves chair and approaches red-haired young man. My name's Tom McNamara. I'm a cartoonist. Well, glad to meet you, Mr. McNamara. My name's George Landy. I'm a wampus. Don't interrupt. My name's Tom McNamara. I'm a cartoonist. I want to meet you. Why do I want to meet you? Because you've got the funniest face I ever saw. They exit, arm in arm. At least he had a good sense of humor about himself, I'd say. And though it took until 1927 before they married, meeting lovely Catherine McGuire as part of the first ever Wampus Baby Stars list shows that for George, anyway, the list achieved one of the big things it was designed to do. Bring in the babes. Catherine was originally a dancer and had had success in supporting roles before being named a baby star. She was blonde and beautiful, they were all beautiful, of course, but she was also once dubbed the most beautiful blonde in Hollywood by the artist James Montgomery Flagg. She should have been a shoo-in for stardom, but it didn't pan out that way. A serious dramatic actor she was not, nor, frankly, did she look the part of a quirky comedy character. She was neither Gloria Swanson nor Marie Dressler. But with some irony, despite never reaching true stardom, out of anyone on the first Wampus list, Catherine McGuire's work is today potentially the only one you've ever seen. If you like Buster Keaton, that is. And if you don't, there's still time to change. Catherine appeared opposite Keaton in two seminal films from 1924, Sherlock Jr. and The Navigator. She has great moments in each, from a fake faint in The Navigator to being the true crime solver in Sherlock Jr. I'd argue that had she worked with Keaton again, 
or even been given similar roles that played to an understated but well-defined comedic timing, Catherine's career would have been very different. Ultimately, though, she bopped around in thankless supporting roles for a few years and then quietly devoted herself to her family. And the Wampas? The prediction was a misfire, but hey, it brought the most beautiful blonde and the funniest face together for a long and happy marriage. Marion I. In March 1922, Marion was just about to turn 19 years old. She had a soft face and lots of lovely, wavy, dark hair, and had appeared in a few pictures, mostly shorts. But the most obvious reason for why she was selected for the inaugural group of Wampus Babies was that she was married to one of the Wampus founding members, Harry D. Wilson. Wilson would eventually become one hell of a press agent, handling publicity for major stars the likes of Dolores Del Rio, Mary Astor, and Lupe Velez. At this point, though, Wilson, who was only about 26, was pretty fresh into his career, and he didn't have a formula for success just yet. After a few publicity stunts with middling results, like having Marion be announced as the first actress to ever sign a contract with a morality clause, he landed on what should have been a good one to raise her profile, using his position at the organization to get his pretty wife on the new Wampas list. In the lead-up to the Wampas, Marion was gaining momentum. She had already featured in a number of comedy shorts. Her face was in photo play. But in the year afterwards, far from becoming a star as the Wampas predicted, Marion's career sputtered and slowed. Just as her appearance on the list can be directly connected to her husband, so frankly can the shambles of her career. Their marriage fell apart in 1923, and she divorced him on the grounds of desertion in 1924, by which time the likes of Screenland magazine were lamenting that the Wampas did not justify their choice by including Marion on that first list. The same year, Wilson became president of the Wampas. To be written off so soon after being named a star of tomorrow must have stung for poor Marion, especially since it seems clear that she wasn't ready to give up on her dreams just yet. In the terms of her divorce settlement, Marion was to receive $50 a week and, unusually, all the publicity Wilson could give her. Unfortunately, her ex-husband used that publicity in the following years to mock and embarrass her, like captioning photos implying that she had low intelligence, and arranging a photo shoot where she was required to kiss an actual bear. It shouldn't come as a shock that this did little to endear her to the public or casting departments. Her last credited role was in 1926. In Motion Picture Magazine, April 1929, they open a piece theorizing about the success rate of the Wampus Baby stars by saying, By the way, did you ever hear about Mary and I? No. How about Margaret Leahy? You're not sure? Then it lists all kinds of names I'll eventually tell you about, adding, Some of them, vaguely you say? Or aren't you quite certain? Well, let it go. 
No use worrying about it. No use making out of it one of those maddening things like wondering four days out on your vacation whether or not you remembered to turn out the bathroom light. We merely asked the question out of curiosity. Marion found herself in dire straits after her alimony payments ceased with Wilson's untimely death in 1933 at age 37. She never gave up on her dream of being a successful actor. However, it simply was not to be. She would pass away herself by suicide in 1951. It's safe to say, though not really her fault, Wampus got this one wrong. And that's all for episode one of the Old Movie Lady podcast, The Wampus Frolic. Join me and the rest of the Wampus Babies of 1922 next week. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe as you see fit. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl. By the way, did you ever hear about Mary and I? At least now you can say you have.